Ricardo, I've got one word for you to describe this week's show. Marketplaces. Dropship. Fulfillment. Data. Okay, it's a whole lot of one words. Dropship counts as a word, right? All right. Let's just say this is all about the future of e-com. Yeah, okay, so I'm not quite sure how many words that counts for, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and stick with e-commerce as the theme for this week and following up our amazing episode with Polly Wong that focused on direct-to-consumer. And we've got another amazing retail transformer on today's show to dive into the future of e-commerce. And this is really exciting. Like Every e-commerce junkie out there listening or watching should be taking out their notepad right now and be ready for some golden nuggets and tips. Oh, no pun intended. <laughs> These strategies that will come at you faster than you can say, where's my package? That is so true. Actually, that's just getting to be a habit, isn't it? Needing a notepad just to listen to the podcast. So I mean, I don't get... know if it's like good or bad. I know, right? <laughs> so maybe we should just get this episode started or, or should we just make everybody wait a little more and keep listening to us talking about it? You're too cruel and obsessed with long introductions. Let's say we just jump in to the intro music already. You're listening to the Retail Razor Show, where your expert hosts and their guests cast through the clatter in retail and retail tech to shape the future of retail. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of The Retail Razor Show. I'm your host, Ricardo Belmar. And I'm your co-host, Casey Golden. Welcome, Retail Razor Show listeners, to retail's favorite podcast for product junkies, commerce technologists, and everyone else in retail and retail tech alike. We're back with another incredible retail transformer as our guest this week. And if you're just coming from Episode 5, our special DTC Retail Transformer episode with Polly Wong, then you're really going to do the dance of joy for this one. Yes. And as a founder, I'm so excited. We're diving into the future of e-commerce, looking at marketplaces, drop shipping, fulfillment challenges, inventory challenges, and much, much more for the whole commerce family in this episode. Oh, yeah. Faithful retail razor show listeners will learn exactly why Brian Dove, CEO of Commerce Hub, is more than meets the eye. I have to say that I love that we finally got to deep dive into the murky waters of e-commerce to really think about and talk through what brands need to get out of their e-commerce sites going forward and how they should grow, what the right tools are, what they need to be building, and how they should handle their supplier relationships. There's just so much more to go into, like fulfillment strategies, managing inventory, and much of this will relate back to what Polly talked about, customer retention. Yeah, that, that's right. This discussion with Brian is a nice bookend to our chat with Polly. I, I can't say enough that if you're a DTC founder or you're responsible for your brand's e-commerce and are looking at drop shipping or marketplace expansion to grow the business, why are you here at the right time? This discussion combined with Polly's could just about be your best practices guide to success. But first, it's time for the newest segment of our show, Retail Razor Data Blades, where we talk real-world numbers and slice through measurable consumer insights. It's a bit like show me the math so I understand where this data is coming from. And bringing us that slicing and dicing of data is Georgina Nelson, CEO of TrueRating. Georgina will share with us some key data points and offer a bit of insight into what's behind those numbers based on their extensive customer insight data at the point of sale. Welcome, Georgina. Thank you so much for having me. So today's Retail Razor Data Blade segment is inflation doesn't impact everyone the same way. Georgina, tell us more. So yeah, we've done some consumer insight research over the past few months to really try and understand how all these macroeconomic trends are influencing consumers and their shopping behavior and habits. We sampled over 170,000 consumers across our key markets in the UK, North America, and Australia. And I think in terms of the nugget I wanted to shout about today was just really, I guess not surprisingly, the number of people who are noticing their impact on rising 
rising cost of living. And that was a whopping 81% of consumers registered that change. But where I think it gets interesting, and as you say, Ricardo, slicing and dicing that data is looking at the differences across demographics and age range. So when we looked at seniors, we found that 89% had been noticing the, the rising cost of living. But take that, flip that up and look at those under 30 and only 75%. And so when you actually think about how the cost of living is impacting different demographics, I think it's really focused on the rising cost of food, food bills, keeping your house warm and yeah, and fuel, et cetera. And so, you know, many of us, including me, did a, did a few stints living with mum and dad in my twenties. And so, you know, those household bills aren't, aren't impacting us as, as, as much. And, and I think that's, you know, that's really the key lesson is that it's not, not a generic homogeneous sweep all impact, we have to really look at slicing and dicing that data and getting very granular insights about how, how these trends are impacting different groups. So, Georgina, we, we so often hear retailers being tempted to chase the newest and youngest demographic because they believe that's where the staying power is and the greater lifetime customer value might come from. But from the data you're, you're telling us, it, it seems to tell us really that retailers need to both tailor their messaging and their targeting unique to uniquely speak to each of those demographics to get the best conversion just based on how current economic conditions are impacting them differently. So how would you say retailers should react to this data? Yeah, I, I very much agree. I think it needs to be a nuanced approach. And, you know, primarily to survive these times, retailers need to really invest in understanding their consumers. And, you know, as we saw through the pandemic, how quickly these consumers are changing and keeping abreast of that. And so that means you know, nuanced and targeted messaging to different consumer groups. But also I think it's down to a store level, you know, taking a very granular approach. Each, each store, as I always say, is a snowflake and they have their own clients, you know, their own customer mix. And so being able to get customer insight down to that store and granular level and really understanding that, that mix up uh, helps you have targeted and nuanced strategies depending on that store. So if you do need to make a price increase, it might be an idea to, you know, look across the whole of North America, for example, and understand your, your base and, and share that distribution across different states and vary that price increase depending on the customer base, for example. So I definitely think that those retailers who are on the front foot with understanding their customers and being able to react really quickly to sentiment and changes in behavior are those who are going to have the competitive advantage as we muddle through these times. It's great, Georgina. Thank you so much for joining us today on Retail Razor's Data Blades. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Things have changed. Now that we've sliced some data, let's get back to the evolution of e-commerce with Brian Dez. And we are here with our special guest and latest retail transformer to visit the show, Brian Dove, CEO of Commerce Hub, a leading provider of cloud-based e-commerce fulfillment and marketing solutions for large retailers, marketplaces, consumer brands, and their suppliers. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me. Really glad to have you join us, Brian. Since our last call, we've both been really excited to have this conversation on marketplaces and fulfillment, kind of touch on some drop shipping and what's been really what the future holds for all these areas for retailing in today's environment and our tomorrows. That's great. I'm, I'm excited to share, share, what, uh, share what we've learned along the way. So just to get started, Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Commerce Hub, and how Commerce Hub works with retailers? Sure. Let's start with Commerce Hub. The Commerce Hub's got 25 years of history. We've been working with the largest big box retailers that are out there and, and really from the late 90s, helping them enable and expand their e-commerce selection. So our customer are are the largest retailers you can imagine, folks like Walmart and Costco and and Macy's and Nordstrom and Best Buy and, and so on. We have a, we have a pretty pretty meaningful number of customers in the large large big box retailer enterprise space. And what we've focused on since the beginning is helping them expand the number of items that they sell on their website where they have not had to have not had to purchase those items. 
So classically referred to as dropship, I think in modern terms, there's dropship, there's marketplace, and there's probably a blend of some other terms to, to describe that. We really just think about it as the unowned inventory. And for most of our, for most of our retailers, it powers, it powers a significant portion and sometimes the majority of their overall, overall online sales and almost always the majority of their overall online selection. And for my personal background, I've been at Commerce Hub of coming up on two years, so more than a year and a half. And then prior to this, uh, I ran a travel business based out of Europe that uh, helped uh, almost a billion travelers a year worldwide. We were number one in 140, 150 countries. And then prior to that, I spent some time at, uh, at Amazon Web Services, Microsoft, and some other tech companies along the way. Amazing. So just to add a little bit of context for our listeners, the commerce suite, what does that mean to a brand or a retailer? So we at Shop Talk this year, so back in March of 22, we, we launched what we branded as the commerce suite. And this was really our our primary evolution of the history of the business. So historically, we've been, we had been really narrowly focused on enabling dropship and it has been, been quite successful. It's a critical piece of infrastructure for all of these retailers that we work with. But as we were talking to our customers, what we heard is we heard lots of needs for expansion, for flexibility, various customers experimenting with item, with ideas like marketplace. Now, if you ask five customers what they mean by a marketplace, you'll get 10 to 15 different answers. Like and so. Yeah, and and so so when, yeah. when you when you really listen for the essence and and push the labels to the side, what they were really looking for is flexibility in the way that they engaged with suppliers, flexibility in the way that they set up items and got them published to the site, flexibility in striking different economic arrangements with different brands that they worked with, and so our our release of the commerce suite was really the first major step in that direction to go from a pure dropship platform to enabling that flexibility that allows that allows our retailers and the brands and suppliers that work with them to, to flex between a dropship model, a marketplace model, and be able to look at those differences really as, as almost like, like light switches that you could turn some on, you could turn some off and, and really enable that to work as well as there's some, there's some lightweight catalog management and item setup automation that's in there as well, really to help enable brands and suppliers to take more control over their listings and, and option over, over prices as they publish onto these different retailer platforms. And so that's really what's encompassed in our commerce suite that we launched earlier this year. That's great. So really all kind of broadly encompassing all the major functions that any, any e-commerce brand is really, really searching for right just in, into one platform. Yeah. I, I mean, if you, if you think all the way, at, you know, at a million foot elevation, broadly speaking, retailers are trying to carry two buckets of goods, things that they have, that they have purchased. So whether it's sitting in their warehouse to only be sold online or they purchased to bring into their stores. And then the rest of their selection are items that are still owned by either the brand or the distributor or the supplier that they still want to list, but they haven't actually taken inventory possession for. And when I, when I look at what our commerce suite enables, it really becomes that, that single platform to power all of your needs for your unowned inventory. Uh, we, have a, we have a network not only of, of dozens to hundreds of retailers, of the, of the largest retailers, but tens of thousands of brands and suppliers that are connected. And so over the last... Over the last 25 years, we've really built this, this network that encompasses virtually everybody of scale across the, the North American e-commerce system. Well, that's pretty impressive. So one of the things I think we should talk about along those lines too is around fulfillment strategies. So for any of the retailers you're, you're talking about in all these series with this mix of owned inventory and other in- inventory that they have, how that retailer can create a really exceptional delivery experience and overall fulfillment experience for their customers uh, using using your your platform, how, how do you help retailers kind of unify their that online marketplace or and or dropship capabilities that they're doing with their overall customer experience? Sure. So so I mentioned I started it's called a year and a half ago or so, and and part of part of starting one of the great things about being in the in the B two B space in the enterprise space is it's you can go talk to your customers, and yeah, I, ma- I made a point to go out and talk to them when I started. I, I still talk to a number of customers virtually every week now. But as I was just talking to them, I would just ask, what problems are they thinking about? What are they worried about immediately? What are they worried about over the next couple of years? And we really started to see this trend where historically, organizations would really separate the fulfillment inside of their supply chain. So thinking about everything from warehouses to fulfillment contracts to logistics, separate from the merchandising and, and pricing and online sales. And it only really, almost really operated as, as almost two different business units inside the organization. And what we saw as an emerging trend is I, I heard from more and more of these retailer executives and, and the executives at brands talking, intersecting the two. How could they use their knowledge on merchandising to 
better optimize their fulfillment? And how could they use their, their expertise on fulfillment to better optimize their merchandising? If you want just a simple example, you might price an item or you might price shipping differently if you know it's sitting in a warehouse that's you know, that's 100 miles from you. So if the warehouse is in the central Florida and you're shipping it to Orlando, I might offer you next day service for free because I actually know the net cost of that is going to be cheap. And I'm going to delight my customer by saying, hey, you've gotten a free upgrade to overnight versus the item is sitting in a warehouse in California. Well, I know it's not economically feasible for me to do so. And, and therefore, I may go a more traditional route of saying, I'll just send it ground and it will be there in, in maybe four to six days. And so we heard just the early, the early inklings of some of these ideas without a lot of concrete plans. And so at the earlier this year, at the same time we launched our commerce suite, we launched a new product offering for us in the fulfillment space that we call our delivery suite. And what that has really focused on is that is helping retailers manage a number of different individual items in their fulfillment chain. So things like as simple as the delivery promise, when will this item show up on the customer's doorstep, which most folks have have pretty well under control for items that are in their stores and in their warehouses. But for things that aren't under their control that are sitting in the, these brands and supplier warehouses, they're sitting in 3PLs. And remember this unowned inventory makes up the, the majority of selection that, that a lot of these retailers offer. They, they really have no control and no insight. And we were able to use the data that we have to be able to drive high quality and high accuracy estimates. And then you connect it into what shipping method to be used. Should I ship this by, th- by two day, by three day, by ground? Well, it depends on what date you promise to the customer. And then how do I manage the economics of that? There are lots of different ways to re-rate. What, what warehouse should I originate that shipment from? Where, you know, I may, I may choose my secondary warehouse, but it might just be on the other side of a zone line, which is going to materially save me money in shipping. Because we work with all these suppliers, how do we drive better compliance of the ship method to be used so that when the retailer is planning on paying for, say, maybe a, a ground shipment, how do we make sure that it actually gets coded as ground and doesn't accidentally get coded as, as three-day error or something like this? All the way to visibility and tracking and out to even the consumer-facing technology so that they can see, where's my package? Let me, let me track it. When is it going to be received? How could I receive text message updates? All of the really consumer-facing functions. So we worked with a couple vendors in the space to bring these together and provide our, our retailers with an all-in-one package. What we learned as we dug in is, one, most of our retailers were out purchasing individual solutions. And while they could find best of breeds for each niche, what it meant was that they had a pretty high total cost of ownership in having to staff various IT people to set that up, to manage those, to do their own integration between all these tools to make them work seamlessly. And second is that all of those investments had really focused on a lot of their their owned inventory, their, their first-party inventory. And so what we really set up to focus is make our delivery products available and functional for whether it's first-party inventory or third-party inventory. But we, we saw a notable, a notable gap in being able to optimize the fulfillment operations, both for consumer experience and for cost, and being able to do that for all of their third-party and unowned items. And we, we've, seen, we've seen really substantial interest uh, over the last six months, this was a completely new area for us. It's adjacent to what we've done on the uh, on, on the uh, on the unowned inventory platform, and we've seen great interest. We've seen a number of different pilots and a number of different customers already beginning to realize pretty substantial savings along the way. And we we think we're still pretty early days in how we integrate what happens on the fulfillment side and what happens on the on the ordering side. And we think as we can bring more and more of that insight and intelligence together, it ends up winning for everybody. It wins for the end consumer because they have more accurate expectations that more consistently get met and ideally get exceeded. They have better, consumers have better visibility and better transparency to what's really happening. The retailer gets more, gets more accurate information to predict what's going to happen, as well as getting better cost control, as well as taking out some of their internal costs and how they strip, strip these together. And then the, the fulfillment carriers also get excited by this because there's opportunities for them to get better insight into the data of what's going to be there. When they drive a truck to go pick up at a at a 3PL location, do they need to send a 20-foot truck or a 40-foot truck today? Mm-hmm. Or do they need to send three trucks or six trucks? And being able to, to use that information to drive efficiency through the whole system ultimately results in everybody having lower costs and being able to return that in the form of lower prices to everybody in the, in the ecosystem. So we think there's a, there's a lot of legs to really further integrating these two and, and, and seeing more and more retailers think about how can they use those two halves of the business to inform each other and drive, 
drive more more value and efficiency into the system. It really sounds like you're building a lot of these distribution strategies into the software to optimize for these for a more flexible business model so that it's not as painful as you remember to be able to launch a new channel or to be able to communicate across some of these different departments from fulfillment to merchandise planning to customer experience. Do you bring, do you find that a lot of this process with either launching the delivery suite or just implementing it, I'm sure that you guys are bringing a lot of distribution strategy and options to the table that some of these retailers or brands just really thought was out of their reach of being able to deploy. Yeah, I, I think one of the one of the things that's really unique about about the retail space is how how substantial the scale differences are, even amongst the top top ten or top fifteen. And so, if you just take just take overall annualized sales as as just one metric of, uh, of overall size, and you think about you think about Amazon being in the 800 plus billion range in annual sales, then Walmart number two at 550-ish, give or take. And then you get to number three and four and they're, they're in the 220, 230 billion range. And $230 billion is still a, a, a ton of money, a ton of volume. But if you look at it on a relative basis, it's pretty rare to see the step from number one to number three be a 75% reduction. I mean, you've got a 4X difference between number one and number three. And you keep going down, you get from Number, number three and four at, at 220, 230 billion folks like Costco and Target. When you get to like number 15 on the list, you're down at, at 20 or $25 billion. Again, $25 billion a year in sales is enormous. These are enormous businesses, enormous brands really delivering value for consumers, but they're still one-tenth of the size of the folks who are number three and four. Yeah. And so when you look at that dispersion in scale, there's, there's technologies and techniques and opportunities that are available to the to the number one or number two players in the market that all of a sudden become less less viable on an ROI basis to bring even to numbers three, four, five, and so on. And I think what's really unique about our about our approach is that we do work with the the virtually all of the large retailers that are out there. So we get to see what what the best and brightest in retail are doing. And then we work with them to say, how can we learn from that? How can we how can we bring that at scale and how can we democratize access to that insight and that technology? In a way that benefits everybody, and again, what, what I what I really what I really love about the retail space is, as we can drive efficiency and and scale and and flexibility into this platform, it ultimately results in lower costs, which in turn, because the sector is so competitive, results in lower costs and lower prices for consumers. And so, being able to drive that efficiency all the way through the ecosystem by by scaling scaling these best practices and, and democratizing access. Will, Quite frankly, will really guide our guide our path over the next several years, and we continue to listen to our customers. What are the most pressing and most important items? But we think we have, given our reach and engagement, the the size and scale of what we internally call the commerce net, of just the number of folks connected to it. We think we have a pretty unique position in the ecosystem to to democratize access to a lot of these, a lot of these newer pieces of flexibility and and efficiency. Yeah. So speaking of you know consumer expectation, let's let's kind of shift a little bit. There, because you've mentioned a, a couple times right on how retailers need that ability to deliver, uh, I'll describe it as sort of the same or, or meet the same expectations, right? Whether it's their own, their inventory or the unowned inventory, right? To your point. And if we think about how a lot of these expectations, uh, I believe, have changed or, or maybe even slightly modified a little bit in, in recent years, certainly because of the changes in shopping behaviors during the pandemic, now uh, there's I think new pressures, right, on retailers on how they go about meeting these different customer expectations. And certainly the old tools that they're used to using are, are probably not built to support the kind of mass direct-to-consumer characteristics that a lot of these expectations are really calling for right now based on the new experiences that consumers got so used to during the pandemic years. So, so Brian, I mean, when you look at this, what, what kind of impact are we talking about in this context? Because you've, you've mentioned a few examples of how retailers using solution can really meet these expectations, deliver on, on those customer promises. And you've also talked about how it's not just about delivering the experience, but also doing it in a cost-effective way. There's potential cost savings that can be had because you're doing things more efficiently. You know, I love the example you gave about how you know if you know that the particular item is in a warehouse that's relatively close to the customer's destination, then you can offer a different a different shipping time 
that still save money in, in the process, right? Because you're not shipping it across the country to meet that requirement. Do you have some some data points you can share? Some examples uh, on just what kind of whether it's the cost savings or, or increases in, in customer satisfaction and things that you've seen with your customers? Sure, sure. Maybe maybe I'll share I'll share one that's that's quite solved and one that I think is really interesting, but as of yet as of yet unsolved, which I think is always always interesting to talk about what else could come in the future. Right, right. Yeah. So in the in the places that are solved, maybe two data points that we see. One is that being able to provide certainty of when something is going to show up on your doorstep, which sounds so so rudimentary and basic, but yet what you'll see across a lot of sites is either they'll see high precision on the items that they have in their warehouses and stores, but low precision on the items that are sold through that are still still sitting in the vendor's warehouse. You might say arrives in six to ten days. Well, it turns out that that really hurts your conversion rate. And so a customer may come to that page, they want to buy that item, but now they're worried six to 10 days. One, I might need it within a week, which is not unreasonable. And I don't know if it's going to be there. Two, it seems so fuzzy. I'm worried six to 10 days becomes 20 days or 30 days, or I worry it's on back order. There's all these things that we've, we've been trained as consumers that, 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 that gives me low confidence. And so we saw, we saw with one of the large retailers, just being able to give delivery certainty both on parcels, things that'll fit in boxes, but also on, uh, also on appliances and refrigerators and, 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 lar- and furniture and just large purchases, we were able to increase the conversion rate into the, into the low double digits. So when you start talking about uh, plus 10 or plus 12 or plus 14% relative improvement in conversion rate on those types of items, those are, th- those are tremendous value creators for both for the retailer and for the consumer. They're already on the page. They're already on the specific item that they're looking for. This is not a a top of funnel or browse behavior. This is the last step of add to cart, and, and we see that we see that driving a, a a tremendous a tremendous benefit for consumers and for retailers. Similarly, I mentioned in our delivery suite, one of the products that we work on helps give consumers visibility to where is their items, where are their stuff, and this is classically the number one driver of customer service calls. Hey, I was expecting this item on this date. Where is it? And so, what we've seen is not only driving a better, higher quality consumer experience for where they can see what the the actual status of their order is. We've seen it result in 25 to 40% lower customer service calls. We've also seen it result in higher conversion of subsequent purchases. So I'll get that update mail that says, hey, your item's on the way, it'll be there on Tuesday. And there are some links there if, in case I'm looking for additional items that might be related, additional categories or sales. And by doing that in a really consumer first way, we've seen, there was one example I saw that folks were seeing an increase of 300%, so a 3x increase in the amount of total conversions and the total revenue from people clicking through that email. They had built it in-house, they upgraded from an in-house solution to the partner that we're using, and they were seeing a 300% increase in that, in that conversion rate. And so we see really, really dramatic gains that can be had when you're able to, to really orient on and meet and exceed those consumer expectations. Yeah, th- the, 3x is an amazing, amazing change, amazing improvement. It's amazing. I yeah, feel like on that consumer side, like as somebody who lives in Brooklyn without a doorman, delivery time and knowing when it's arrived, it affects whether or not I'm going into the city and when I'm going to be back. And there's many a times I do not order something online just because it may not be on my doorstep when I get back. That, that's right. So that, that is an amazingly unplanned segue to the thing that I was going to tease. I said is, is a growing trend, but as of yet unsolved, which I is this- somebody running around Brooklyn wearing a Monaco hoodie. And I spent three years looking for it. I feel like I'd like it yeah. back. You're going to, you're going to run into them someday on the, on the subway. On the subway and, yeah. and you have to have yeah. that moment of how do I get this back right That's now? That's my hoodie. Right. <laughs> yeah. Just carry the printed receipt around with you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so speaking of that, there's, there's a really incredible trend that I think is still in its, in its early days that there's a lot that we can adapt the ecosystem around. So this notion of buying online, picking up a store, right? Classically Bopus. And w- when, we, when we saw this spike over the last couple of years, when you think about what happened in 2020, obviously the stores closed, you saw this massive spike in e-commerce adoption. And at the time, all of us collectively believed this has just pulled the future forward. And what we've started to see is when you just look at the overall public retailer numbers and, and public e-commerce numbers, you see that over 21 and 22, as things began to open up, as we started to feel more comfortable in this pandemic or potentially get past it, you saw, you, you saw slower growth in the e-commerce space and it almost starts to revert back to the historical trend line, historical average. Now, e-commerce is still up and to the right over time, but that, that dramatic pull forward has started to, 
I started to ebb back to the to the longer term 10, 15 year trend. What's interesting to me is buy online pickup in store, when when you look at some of these BOPUS numbers that some of the retailers put out, they were not talking about 20% year on year gains. They were talking about things like 60% gains, 80% gains, 100 percent year on year. You see some retailers, huge retailers talk more than 50 or 60% of all online orders are fulfilled by BOPUS. Now, to me, what's really fascinating is that that trend has not just been a spike in, during 2020 and early 21. That trend has sustained and continues to grow. So now, then I start to look at it and think, well, how is BOPUS working today? And really what it's limited to is it's limited to the stock that's on hand in the store that's around the corner from you. And so if you think about the evolution of e-commerce, we went from only buying what was in stock at our stores to now having this access to this infinite aisle, this endless aisle where all of the items were available. And now we have this new emerging preference around BOPUS, yet BOPUS now comes back to being restricted to only the items, only the items that are on hand in the store. And so, you know, when, when I look at where is additional space for innovation by, by intersecting where consumer patterns are showing up and what retailers are looking at is we're, we're actively working with folks to figure out how do we expand what's available for BOPUS? How could we have you still get that convenience? Maybe it's not one hour, maybe it's 12 hours. But if you ordered it tonight, how do you go pick it up from the store tomorrow so you don't worry about the item getting stolen from your doorstep, which is not only a Brooklyn problem, it's a pretty common urban problem. And we are, we're, we're broadly a, an you know, urban plus, plus suburbs population when you look at the population dynamics. You know, rural is a, is a relatively small portion of the population overall e-commerce spend. How do we make that safe to have things ordered at home? How do we make that safe to have the convenience so that you know you get that item? And there's, there's a lot of drivers behind the, the rise in BOPIS. There's another theory, which is, you know, we all work from home these days, or, or a number of us do. And if you work from home, sometimes you're just looking for an excuse to get out of the house, but you still want the, the convenience of e-commerce. You don't want to be wading through aisles with a cart and picking out all the things you need. And so it, it does BOPIS provide that middle ground where you're, you're really getting out of the house, but not, but, um, reducing the time spent on the part that you don't enjoy. And so we're seeing this tremendous rise and looking at how we can help, help expand that selection for what's available by BOPUS. So you still get that endless aisle experience, but you're still able to leave the house, still able to go pick up the items that you want on your schedule and your time. No, I think that that's great. And I think it's really important when so many sales start online and really bringing in, we have 80% of retail that's traditionally been in store. It only makes sense to be able to window shop or browse online and swing by and pick it up. The likelihood of you buying another item is higher and just being able to be more focused when you're looking to make a purchase today. You know, I need something. I need it today. You go browse online. And then if you don't have that pickup in store availability or be able to filter those products to be able to say, like, what is actually here? Because I'm going to be swinging by or I'm coming this direction. And I need to pick it up. There's a lot of there's a lack of communication there from online to the stores commonly, you know, if they don't have a really good program in place. I look at going to five, six stores to make a purchase. I want to know what you have. I don't want to go to six stores physically. <laughs> I am looking for something and I just want to go to the store that has, has it or something that will suffice because I needed it tonight and it was last minute or whatnot. And I think that this is a big opportunity for a lot of brands to solve these inventory issues that kind of goes back to Omnichannel, really understanding where the overlap is, where your inventory levels are, and how do you get it to the customer based off of like multiple options. Waiting five days is not ideal, but either is, you know, going to like seven stores in between your day to day, trying to just find a sweater for a holiday party or for something. You know, a lot of people wanted to get back out, but at the same time, in-store inventory was 10% of what was available online. And you'd go to the store and there's like nothing in the stores. All of these things were available online only. So a big difference if you knew what your customers could pick up in-store, you could plan your in-store inventory better too. That's right. Well, and I think I think you hit hit the nail on the head with the with the 10% number, which is if somebody has, I'll make up a, a million SKUs online, they may have only 30,000, 50,000, maybe 100,000 in, in, in the store, minus whatever is currently out of stock or sold out because they only stocked one or two or three of, of, of a lot of these SKUs. 
And so the idea that I need it tonight, you know, you're pretty limited. But if you could get it in the morning, and all of a sudden what's available in the morning is 40,000 SKUs, maybe not the full, maybe not the, the, the you know, the full million SKUs, but maybe 40,000, maybe 100,000, maybe 200,000, yeah. some meaningful portion of that million SKUs all of a sudden is available on relatively short notice. That all of a sudden changes the, the way that you think about this rather than waiting three or four days for it to get home. How you filter, how you search from like first yeah. click. It's like, show me this. I need it right. around this time rather than looking at product first. You're looking at filter my product based off of timelines and availability. That, that's exactly right. And, and I, you know, what I find in the B2B space, the place I always try to anchor myself as I start from what is the consumer experience and work backwards. And I feel like if there's something that's meaningfully improves the consumer experience, going from, you know, tens of thousands of SKUs to hundreds of thousands of SKUs that I can pick up within the next 12 hours, that's a great upgrade. And then it turns out being able to do that drives better economic efficiency for the retailer and for the brand as well. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden that becomes not just a viable option, but in fact, sometimes a preferred option. And when you have this intersection of better for the consumer and more efficient and effective for, for all of the businesses in the operational chain, that, that's really where I, I, where I start to see the magic light up. And, and I think those are the types of scenarios and combinations that when we're talking with our customers, we really look for and say, now, is there, is there an interesting or unique way that we can invest to enable that scenario in a way that's going to benefit every single member of the, of the ecosystem? And, and those we find are the winners that we really try to focus on. And, yeah, your white sporting session assembly. Yeah, and in this case, Brian, isn't it really a, a situation where the data is there? For the retailer, and, and maybe not in one place, obviously, but in, in lots of different systems potentially, but to a certain degree, right, the scenario you just describe in trying to solve this challenge, it, it seems like it just comes down to being able to collect the data from all these different areas and find the right way to surface the, the corresponding insight that you're really getting at here, right, into how do I make these additional products available to, to a, a, a BOPUS customer, right, at the time that they want it to be available knowing that I probably have an item somewhere, but it may or may not be in the right place at the right time. That, that, that's exactly right. I think all of this data to somebody in the, in the ecosystem, they have all the data. The difficulty of can you find the right data, can you, can you make it usable, and can you intersect it in ways that ultimately benefits everybody? I think that's where, where everybody needs to focus on what they're great at. You know, if I'm a retailer, what I'm I'm amazing at is finding my target customer segments, understanding what they're looking for, being able to reach them consistently and do so at do so at relatively low cost. That that's how they're that's how they're able to generate these these large level sales and, and do it profitably. If I look at brands, they really understand their core customer and understand understand their tastes and preferences. And then they're able to to get that to their customers both through direct channels as well as through through retail channels. And you know, I look mm -hmm. at Companies like Commerce Hub and other technology companies in, in the e-commerce ecosystem, our focus is really on how do we take the data that's available? How do we take the, how do we find those insights of ways that we can improve a workflow that adds benefits and efficiency to everybody in the, in the chain and then democratize that through technology so that everybody gets access to those benefits and technology in a way that works for them. And then this, the level of scale works for us. And so I think everybody's got a role to play and, and we try to, we try to do our best of listening to our customers and focus on ours. I think it's really great. And I think that's a, a wonderful term by democratizing access to technology, because a lot of the times the technology costs are so large and to be able to obtain an ROI from it quick enough to validate that cost. Sometimes it's just it's too much for a brand to be able to take on sometimes to be moved from number 15 to number eight, you know? 15 to number eight is huge, but these technology costs have definitely been almost dated by needing to be able to have a certain level of cash and resources to be able to implement some of the great solutions that are at, that are available for the one, twos, and threes. Absolutely. At, at a earlier point in my career and my life, I spent, I spent about a decade building software for large hospital organizations. And it, when you look at those, it's a, it's, a, it's a different world than retail, but I think from a technology perspective, they were in a really similar place. And you have even more specialization. You can imagine the software for the radiology folks doing x-rays is different than the software 
for the cardiologist doing heart exams, which is different than the the nurses doing general intake versus the the ICU and and, and everything else. And so they had hundreds of these individual pieces of software and the IT costs were just becoming overwhelming. Yeah. Because even if you just think, I only need one person to maintain each product, next thing you know, if you've got a, a group of three or four hospitals, you might have 1,500 pieces of software. Yeah. And you really saw, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you started to see these, these hospital chains really start to crumble under the, the technology burden. And, and out of that, you saw a few technology companies really rise by, by focusing on reducing that total cost of ownership, easing that integration, and making more and more of that functionality available to everybody not just the two or three hospitals that, that had disproportionate scale, but really across the, the whole country and eventually the world. And so having, having lived through that, and as I've gotten to know the e-commerce space more and more, I think there's a, there's a similar pattern that's starting to play out because e-commerce was, was so nascent for the first 20 years that it was just about scale. I need to have more items. I need to be able to reach more customers. I need to be able to, I need to have more warehouse capacity. I need to have more fulfillment capacity. It was really about that scale up. But we've now started to reach this place where the scale, the growth in the scale is swelling. And now it becomes a focus on efficiency. And I think the innovation that we'll see over the next 10 years is all about finding not only can I take cost out, but can I increase and improve the consumer experience while I'm taking cost out? And I think that's really where, where this notion of, of democratizing access to this technology and enabling some of these mid-size, mid-size folks or even the folks that have, have large scale in absolute terms, but underscale in retailer terms, mm-hmm. how do we help them compete with with the largest chains and with the largest businesses? And and then how do we partner with the largest businesses and help support them to to spend their their resources on the things that benefit consumers most rather than building infrastructure and tools. And so that's really how we focus on enabling the whole the whole ecosystem. I think it's great. I really love seeing just a focus on your technology spend and how that affects the customer experience. We've been depicting the rules for a long time. Um, and not really considering them in our software decisions. And now I feel that how any software impacts the customer experience is a conversation that's being had exercise. And I think it's I think that's definitely a step in the right direction. Yeah. And I think it also relates to an issue that when we last spoke with you, we talked about if you have a retailer who's uh, able to spend on the right technology to help accomplish all these things, or you're also kind of balancing that against what's the cash outlay for that owned inventory that you need to keep up with. And given, given that we've kind of entered a holiday shopping season here, we know that the, the traditional retail approach is to really stock up on inventory for those holiday selling period. But there's also right, a model that says, you know, what, what about having a, a more of a just-in-time merchandising kind of model for how you do this, particularly if you are becoming a marketplace? And I think you have, you have some thoughts on, on this, right, Brian? Yeah, certainly. I, you know, I think... For first and foremost, if you asked a business, if you could meet all of your customer needs, would you rather put more of your cash at risk or less of your cash at risk? The, the answer is the answer is pretty simple. Mm-hmm. I'd much rather conserve my cash and hold it in my bank account if I could still fulfill and meet all of my all of my customer needs. And so I, I you know, I, I look at that first as a trend and think, well, if we can if we land on the right side of that, then we're probably onto something. And then second is we look at well, what are the what are the barriers to meeting all of their to meeting all of their consumer needs, and there are a number of them. I mean, if we look over the last eighteen months, we've all lived through the, these these incredible supply chain challenges, and not only did you see the the sometimes historical trends of let me boost the inventory I own as we get into the holiday season, but you saw a number of folks placing orders over the last twelve or eighteen months to buy more inventory because they were just scared of having empty shelves, mm-hmm, right? And yeah. then we saw in some of the public earning announcements. Earlier this year, you know, at the end of Q1, at the end of Q2, you heard people talking about now an inventory surplus. Right. They'd built up all this inventory, but as demand began to contract, they ended up with surplus of what they didn't want and they have to start clearing it out. And so we think one, a enabling retailers to conserve their cash or to choose to deploy it elsewhere, as long as they can meet all their customer expectations, it is better for their model. And so we really try to think about it less of what is the balance between owned versus unowned inventory and more, how do we enable more of the unowned inventory to still meet all those consumer expectations? And so when we, when we look at that, that notion of just-in-time merchandising, we think, A, how are we enabling more variety and more selection to still meet those consumer expectations? Things like next day, as, as a place that we're looking at. 
things like what we're already doing today of narrowing that expectation of when is that item really going to be on my doorstep? Or there's, there's other work that we've done with some of our customers where they may have multiple suppliers who provide the same item. And so how do we just automate the process of dropping through that supply? So when your preferred supplier sells through their stock, you don't need a merchandise person to go change things. We just want to fulfill from the next available supplier who has the next best, next best offering or next best price or next best shipping method. And how do we just automate that so it's not blocked by some, by some employee in the merchandising or supply chain machine, quite frankly, to go in and hit, hit a green button to turn it on? How do we just automate that process? And so we're, we're often looking for ways to take friction out of the system and, and bring some of that more real-time and reactionary uh, experience to, to the offers. I think the maybe the the more the broader trend around just in time merchandising is one that's going to evolve quite frankly over the next few years. And it, when it, when I look at that, I heard I was talking to one of our retail executives, and and he made a really interesting comment to me. And his comment was that he sees merchandising shifting from a group of folks who curate particular items to a group who really curates and nurtures relationships with brands. And, and I thought that that was a, a really interesting notion. We spend a lot of time talking about it. And what it really came down to is that if you think about the world of not just technology, retailers for years have been A-B testing on their website. Mm-hmm. What is the page? What is the orientation that's going to deliver the best, the best conversion rate, the best experience for consumers, the best return rate, uh, sorry, retention rate? Uh, but you have not seen a lot of that concept extend into the actual items that are being carried. And so where I, where I heard this, this retail exec talking about really shifting to a relationship with brands and thinking, how do you entice a brand to just carry their whole catalog? And you can almost start to use your website as a way to test uh, if, a, if a, maybe a brand has 10,000 items. Well, you're only going to carry probably 200 of them in the store. But how do you know which 200 to carry? And how do you start to let the website and your consumer demand through your website actually give you the data to know of these of these 10,000 items this brand carries, which are the 200 that resonate most with your customers? And there's something really powerful about knowing that if you're on abc.com, the customers who are already shopping there are telling you which of this brand's products they love most, and then being able to upgrade that. So not a separate season, not a new wholesale order, not a new, not a new relationship or system setup or six-month lag, but how would you change that from a per unit dropship order or per unit marketplace order? And how would you just order a thousand of those most popular items, of those 200 popular items to just ship them into your stores directly? And so when we look at this this notion of just-in-time merchandising over the next few years, we really see the technology doing more and more automation of of the easy and obvious tasks and enabling merchants to be far more sophisticated, far more data led, and thinking much more about relationships with brands and that escalation path that that some of those SKUs are going to be sold in the marketplace model, some are going to be drop shipped, and some of them are going to make it to the store. And how do we use data to to really rethink that process and, and evolve it in a way that that just has, has yet to penetrate the the way that we approach retail today? Yeah, I think I you 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 beat me to the punch. My my last question was oh, really no, it's perfect. It was really about like what do you see the biggest change in commerce will be that will be a new standard in in about five years? And I think that just-in-time merchandising can full stop. There's so much opportunity to make sure that the right product is being shown to the right customer at the right. I've been a buyer in a former life and uh, you shoot from the hip. There's not a lot of data decisions that are made from that. And so there's such a huge opportunity of having the right product for that customer at the right time versus marketing a product to all the customers for a period. Well, as a merchandiser, as a buyer, what you're really trying to do is predict the future. Yeah. You're trying to predict which products your customers will love most. And Without yeah, customer data. <laughs> it's all about the data. <laughs> well, uh, uh, you know, this is not an exclusively retail problem. I mean, across yeah. all of technology, yeah. for years and years, people have tried to, to, to predict the future of what, of what their customers would want in whatever sector they were in. And I think what what we've learned across almost every sector is that at scale, our opinions kind of suck. Like our opinions aren't, aren't very accurate. You know, we have instincts in the directions. Our ability to read the market of the direction we should go in tends to be pretty accurate, but our ability to read the direction of the specifics and the details is pretty tough. And 
This is why you see, you know, A-B testing is maybe the easiest thing to point to, but it's not the exclusive one. You see across every industry and every sector, this continual shift to data-driven decision-making. Mm -hmm. And today, in, while it has penetrated things like the, the front end of the, uh, of the retailer's website, it has not made it all the way into the back end, into the merchandising selection, into fulfillment strategies, into, into warehouse locations and positioning. There are, there are more and more places where we can use more data from the end customer to drive better and smarter decisions and, and to let the data guide, guide the way. And I think that is just a, a continual evolution that, that all of us have had to experience across basically every, every vertical because it's, you know, unless somebody's got a crystal ball I don't know about or, or a DeLorean that can go back in time, like predicting the future is, is it's really hard. It is. And so that's yeah. where yeah. we try to think about partnering with our customers to, to enable a more data-driven approach. Yeah. Everybody has an opinion in retail, right? And, you know, we've had to rely on that for, for decades. That opinion has carried a lot of weight on these decisions. And I think that we, I really appreciate you joining us today to dig into this much needed discussion as we approach the new year, new budgets, holiday season is coming in really fast right now. So I have a feeling our listeners will hit the replay button and uh, grab a notebook. Oh, that's, that's very kind of you. Thank you so much for having me today. If any of our listeners, they if they want to learn more about Commerce Hub and how you might be able to help them, how should they reach out to you or or follow you as, as you guys post more information and more case studies and things of that nature? Sure. Easiest thing to do just to learn more about our products and services, it's commercehub.com, spelled exactly like it sounds. You can also, we post a, a number of stories and and, and insights that we've learned along the way on the Commerce Hub LinkedIn account. That's probably the, the most active place where we post content. Great. Or if anybody has specific questions or wants to get in touch, I'm I'm personally quite findable on LinkedIn. Feel Feel more than free to just reach out to me directly and I'll happily direct you to the right folks on our team. Okay, fantastic. Well, thanks again, Brian, for joining us. We really hope to have you back again soon. This has been a really insightful discussion. Great. Yeah, I mean, Thank I'm you all. Be here all day. So <laughs> Ricardo, I think it's chat time for us to wrap up this episode. Thank you again, Brian. Really appreciate it. Thanks y'all. Have a great day. We hope you enjoyed our show and we can't ask you enough to please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts to help us grow and bring you more great episodes. If you don't want to miss a minute of what's next, be sure to smash that subscribe button in your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to check out our show notes for handy links and more deeds. I'm your host, Casey Gold. And if you'd like to learn more about the two of us, follow us on Twitter at KCC Golden and Ricardo underscore Belmar, or find us on LinkedIn. Be sure to follow the show on LinkedIn and Twitter at Retail Razor, plus our YouTube channel for videos of each episode and bonus content. I'm your host, Ricardo Belmar. Thanks for joining us. And remember, there's never been a better time to be in retail if you cut through the clutter. Until next time, this is the Retail Razor Show. Oh,